Good to be back together after a week of who knows what, right? Luke chapter 4, we continue our journey through Luke. We're in chapter 4 today. We'll be looking at verses 31 through 44. Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 44. Here in a few weeks, we're going to start a new series. We're going to take a bit of a pause from Luke starting in March, just a couple of weeks from now. And we're going to do a six-week, I think six-week journey through what a series we're calling, calling Sacred Sorrow. Uh, it's really a walk through the book of Lamentations on this spiritual discipline of laments, how Christians ought to grieve. And God has given us the means by which we do that. It's called lament. And we will come together to look at that over six weeks. And then we'll come back to Luke And then we'll go to something else and we'll come back to Luke. We'll be with Luke for a while. So he's a friend of ours that's going to be with us for some time. But we'll uh, continue our time with him this morning, looking forward to what the Lord has for us in the days to come. I want us to begin looking at Luke chapter 4. We'll begin in verse 31. I'll read down through the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord inspired by the Holy Spirit. We read, And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed. And said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. Reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. And they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her. And he rebuked the fever. And it left her. And immediately she she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases were brought, or brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went to a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them, but he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Would you open our eyes and our ears and our hearts now to receive it, that we may be changed by it to your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in case you didn't know, we are in an election year. Yeah, I know. I was surprised about that too. Um, And you know what that means. With an election year comes many kinds of things, right? With an election year, that means the year continues on as it does with all of the ads, with all of the speeches, the debates, the discussion. And what is presented for us from a local to a national level are all these different candidates making their case as to why they should be elected to a certain office of authority. That's what elections do. They confer authority to some and withhold authority from others based on the will of the people. 
And those who are elected to office are given power to act based on the position they've been elected to hold. And we as the voter, we're called to kind of weigh all of these positions, all of these policies, all of these promises each candidate has and proclaims, and then we're called to vote for the candidate that we think will best use his or her authority for the good of the people. And praise God for that privilege. Praise God we have the ability to take part in these kinds of decisions, and we should never take that for granted. Well, when Luke writes to Theophilus about the life and ministry of Jesus, Luke is not presenting a, 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 um, um, some kind of agenda that Jesus is laying out as if he is going to lay out the best case in order to be elected to office. Luke is not writing on what could be if Jesus is embraced. Luke is writing to Theophilus not on what could be, but actually on what in fact is. You see, Jesus was not running for office. He is in office, right? He holds this office and no one will ever overthrow him. The authority Jesus has is not like the authority conferred to those that are elected to office in our situation in this country, for example. You see, the authority Jesus has is not something that we give him. It's something that he has already, having been given, it, given to him by the Father. And that authority gives him every right to fulfill the ministry he came to accomplish. So as we look at this passage this morning, what we see is really two things that we're going to look at. We're going to see both the authority of Jesus and the priority of his ministry. The fact that he has authority and he demonstrates that authority through these miraculous ways. And then we also see on top of his authority, the priority of his ministry, which is the kingdom of God. Now, I just gave you the two points so you don't check out, all right? We're going to break that down a bit and then we'll see exactly just how great Jesus is. First and foremost, we see that Jesus reveals the authority of his ministry, and we see that in verses 31 all the way through verse 41. Now, after leaving a quite contentious scene in Nazareth, last week we left Jesus with all of these angry, wrath-filled Nazarethites, or whatever they're called, they were ready to throw him off a cliff because he dared to say that the gospel was good news for all. See, the Jewish people, they were ethnocentric, they were very proud people, and they didn't want other people sharing in the good news. And Jesus says, actually, it's good news for everyone. You're, you're actually the ones that are rejecting it. But it's actually going to go to the Gentiles, to all. And so after leaving that scene, he now makes his way back to the seaside community of Capernaum. This was a Jewish town on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And really it would become kind of a, a central place to Jesus's ministry where he would do basically almost a base of operations where he would go out and do ministry from. This city was, the economy was largely driven by agriculture and fishing uh, being the primary drivers there, but it was a popular place, kind of a crosswords where people would come and trade and that's where Jesus was. And he arrives there at Capernaum and he continues his typical approach to ministry at this point. What does he do? He goes to the synagogue and he continues to teach. So he shows up there at the synagogue in Capernaum, and there he reveals several truths about his authority. So that's the context. He's back in Capernaum, and he's doing ministry. He's in the synagogue, and he begins to unpack for them 
in a variety of different ways the authority that he has as Lord. First of all, we see his authority in his teaching. See that in verses 31 and 32, don't you? Went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, was teaching them on the Sabbath. Notice what verse 32 says, and they were astonished at his teaching. Why? For his word possessed authority. His word possessed authority. When Jesus taught, people knew something was different. In fact, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 29, we read, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. See, the people had grown up listening to the Pharisees, the scribes, and all of these religious teachers of the day. And Jesus comes along and begins teaching, and there was something radically different about his teaching. Something radically different. In John chapter 8, verse 26, Jesus says, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. See, the difference between Jesus and the scribes was that Jesus was proclaiming a word directly from God. He was speaking on behalf of his Father. He was speaking truth. He wasn't speaking out based out of the traditions of man. He was speaking directly from God and his word. That was the big difference. They would depend upon tradition, whereas Jesus spoke independently and addressed the Old Testament scriptures directly. Because I think it's good for us to be reminded of this. Think about the authority. We're told there they were astonished for his word possessed authority. Listen, everything you believe, if you're a Christian or if you're not a Christian, Everything you believe is based on some authority, someone's authority. You may be present today and not a Christian, and you're maybe here just with a friend or checking us out and trying to understand Christianity a little bit more. Listen, even everything that you believe, it's based on someone's authority. Every belief is. All of us have beliefs, and behind those beliefs is an authority of some kind driving those beliefs. No one's beliefs or practices exist apart from some authority. The words of Jesus possessed authority because what he spoke was from God. God was the authority driving the things that Jesus spoke. That's why we see there, for his word possessed authority. We know also that Jesus was God in the flesh. Therefore, he spoke with authority. Friends, again, if you're here today and you struggle to embrace the teaching of the Bible, just ask yourself, if you're not willing to trust God's word, then what do you trust? And then when you look to that, there's going to rest your sense of authority. You just have to wait. What it it is you're basing your life on what it is that you're believing to be true based upon some authority, is that authority more rational and more convincing than the authority that we have from God? Are you willing to put that up against God and his word? Are you willing to reject God's authority for the authority of someone else? Brothers and sisters, before we get too self-righteous with our skeptical friends, we need to admit that we can often do the same thing. That, that classic phrase, 
that classic phrase that I have heard too often, too often in the church, not just this church, just in general, in churches I've been in, that classic phrase is this, well, I know what the Bible says, but. I know what the Bible says, but. Well, that's no different at the end of the day, but what? But I rather believe a different authority and therefore come to this conclusion. I can fill your sentence out for you. That's really what you're saying. Brothers and sisters, do you acknowledge the authority of Christ? His authority was demonstrated very clearly in his teaching. And again, we talked about this last week. This is why the teaching of God's word ought to be primary to our lives as Christians. As we feed upon his word, as we hear his word taught, whether in a public setting like this or in a small group or one-on-one in discipleship relationships, are we putting ourselves in a position to be regularly taught by God's word because his word possesses authority? But not only do we see his authority in his teaching, we see his authority over evil. Verse 33, in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. So check this out. Jesus is in the synagogue teaching. And all of a sudden, there's a demon-possessed man that is either there or shows up. A man possessed by a demon emerges. The demon's reaction, notice The demon has overtaken the man, verse 33. He cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Notice the demon's reaction to Jesus seems to be during the time Jesus would have been teaching. Now, before we move on, I want to make sure that we are aware of a couple of things here. I want to make a couple of observations First of all, we need to affirm the reality of the spiritual world. The reality of the spiritual world. Listen, the devil and his demons are legit. They're real. They're fallen angels determined in their opposition against God and his mission. They are real enemies of God, but while they are not equal to God, they can powerfully act, tempt, and cause trouble. I know that we in the West are prone to have logical explanations for everything. Most things that we experience in life, there has to be some kind of logical explanation, some kind of rational explanation as to why this is happening. We come up with labels and terms and all kinds of things to describe something that's going on, and we tend to undermine or downplay the reality of the spiritual world. This is a good reminder. It's not the main point of this text, but I think it's a good reminder to us of that reality. Listen, demonic oppression and possession are a thing. Spiritual warfare is something many believers will often ignore, and yet it's a regular part of our daily lives. I don't think a Christian can be overtaken or possessed, but certainly influenced and impacted. Spiritual warfare is a regular part of our lives. And and what we tend to have happen is two extremes. Either demons are everywhere behind everything or demons are nowhere. Those are the two extremes that I would counsel you to avoid. Everything that goes wrong in this life can't be attributed to the work of a demon necessarily. Every bad mistake that you make can't be blamed upon the devil. The devil made me do it kind of theology. 
So oftentimes we'll opt for this demons are everywhere and every bad thing happens. We've got to name the demons so that we can cast the demons out and all this crazy stuff begins to emerge in that direction. Or we just explain everything away with rational things. You know, there's no, there's no demonic. I think those are two extremes we need to avoid. A lot of the conflicts and difficulties we face in our relationships, in our jobs, in the inward trials we endure are often spiritual in nature. And yet we are quick to blame other things. Now I know that a lot of the temptations we face in this world can be either the world, the flesh, or the devil, right? Or a combination of all three. But notice what Paul picks up on Ephesians chapter six. He's talking in that chapter about the whole armor of God. We're to put on the armor of God. But there in verse 12, Paul says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against what? the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul seemed to have a very robust and healthy theology of spiritual warfare. Friends, the truth of the matter is, is that Satan is a deceiver and a liar and he does prowl around seeking those whom he may devour. reality of the spiritual world. Another thing that we need to affirm is the presence of the demonic influence that can, can happen, the presence of demonic influence. Notice the sad irony here. I think often we're led to think demons are only found in graveyards or places that are haunted or on stranger things or something like that. But here we see this demon active in the local synagogue. One person said, we don't have to go farther than the assembly of God's people to find evidence of the enemy's work. Brothers and sisters, I think that's a reminder to us to be vigilant, to recognize the truth that a spiritual world does exist, but rest in the truth that no matter how powerful these forces may seem, they are not so great that Jesus could never overcome them. So here, back in this text, we see Jesus is teaching and this demon goes off loudly. Verse 33, a loud voice. This was not some little low-key thing off the side. This was, a this was an interruption to what was going on. This demon is yelling loudly. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This demon is threatened by Jesus' presence. And the reason he's threatened is because he knows exactly who Jesus is. Fully aware of Jesus' authority and confesses, get this, he confesses who the, the truth of who Jesus is. He's the Holy One of God. Not only does he rightly acknowledge the truth about Jesus, look, he is immediately compliant to Jesus when Jesus utters the word, go out of him. So this demon understands who Jesus is and is compliant to his word. Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And that's exactly what happens, the demon leaves. This is not the only demon Jesus confronted. Later in the text, we're gonna read that demons came out of many crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak probably because he didn't want his PR team to be demons. 
But look what the text says. Because they knew he was the Christ. The demons at this point had a better Christology than the people of Nazareth or anyone around them. They knew exactly who he was. He was the Messiah. He was the Holy One of God. He was the Son of God. They knew exactly who they were dealing with. And here's a humbling observation. The demons have a better understanding and respect for Jesus than did the people around him at the time. It doesn't mean that they were with him. They certainly were opposed to him. We know that the demons even believe and yet they shudder. Friends, as God's people, as God's people, we should never let demons outdo us in affirming affirming the truth of who Jesus is and being compliant to the things that Jesus calls us to do. Consider this obedience of the demons. Now they obey out of a raw understanding of who Jesus is. This is not, they're not obeying out of a love and adoration for him. They hate him. But they understand the magnitude of his authority and they have no other option but to comply with his word. So think about that. They obey out of a raw understanding of Jesus and his authority, but friend, how much more ought we as God's people redeemed by his grace as those who have been loved by God and rescued and adopted into his family, how much more ought we to be compliant to the things that he calls us to do? These demons know exactly who Jesus is, but they don't follow him. It seems tragic, doesn't it, to know the truth about Jesus and yet not follow him? Friend, you don't have to be a demon for this to be true. You can know exactly who Jesus is. You can give lip service to who Jesus is and not for a moment follow him. You can know a lot about the Bible. You can know a lot about what it means to be a faithful attender to a church. You can have all the right answers and yet not be in a place of trusting and following and adoring Jesus for who he is. In that sense, you're no better off than the demons. And this is why we so desperately need this good news that Jesus came to proclaim. This is the sad testimony of all of us before our conversion. That we are confronted with the reality of who God is, that he is the holy creator of the universe, and that he is righteous in every way, and that he has this holy and righteous standard. He created us in his image to reflect his glory and power. And yet we rebelled against him in disobedience to him and we fell into sin and now because of that we are condemned, we are held accountable because of our sinfulness and our rebellion against God who is holy and yet God in his amazing grace so loved the world that he sent his son into the world, a world that was filled with demons and unrighteousness and evil and darkness, that he sends his son into the world to to confront that head on and to take upon himself the responsibility of living a life of perfect righteousness, and yet going to a cross to die in the place of sinners so that he would bear the full wrath and weight of God against our sin. For those who would put their hope and trust in him, they would be rescued, forgiven once and for all from this tragic reality of rebellion against God. And friend, if you're here today and you do not know 
what it means to be reconciled to this Jesus. Look no further. Rest in him. Put your hope and trust in him. He is the only one that not only can deliver you from the demonic, he can deliver you once and for all from sin and death. Luke's point is clear. Evil is no contender against God. Be encouraged. No matter how dark, no matter how evil, no matter how difficult this world is, no matter how powerful or great the evil we may face may seem to be, Jesus can take it out in a simple word. And friends, Jesus will have the final word. You can rest in that. Should be a reminder to us that we must look to Christ and rest in his authority. The people responded to him amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out and reports about him went into every place in the surrounding region. Friend, I just ask you, do you find yourself overwhelmed and amazed by this Jesus? The authority that he demonstrates over the evil realm. Not only do you see it in his teaching, not only do you see his authority over evil, you see it over sickness, over the physical. You see that in verses 38 through 41. Luke is stringing several different types of authority here. Authority in his teaching, authority over the evil, the spiritual world, now even over the physical world. You see that. After Jesus sends the demon packing, he leaves the synagogue and goes to Simon Peter's house, probably for a meal. But it's quickly made known, at least to us as we read this, that Simon's mother-in-law was gravely ill. The text tells us she had a high fever. This doesn't seem to be some routine sickness that comes and goes. This seems to, to be something very grave. She was not well. High fever indicates life-threatening situation. So they asked Jesus for help. And we're told that Jesus stands over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. Check that out for a second. Jesus stands over her and he rebuked the fever and it leaves. Do you, do you see what Dr. Luke is saying here? Luke, the physician, is describing a situation where Jesus stands over this ill woman and he speaks words to a fever. Think about that. Fevers do not have minds or ears or consciousness. And Jesus rebukes this unhearing, unthinking thing and it obeys him and leaves. Notice what happens. This woman who was on the verge of death immediately gets up. She didn't just, the fever go away and she's gonna rest for a few days. She immediately gets up and begins serving. Like this is total, complete healing. No Zithromax or whatever that Z-Pack is needed. Right, total healing, complete. And then the word gets out according to verse 40 and here comes a bunch of other people for him to do the same. See that in verse 40, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him and he laid his hands on every one of them. Notice the compassion of Jesus, he lays his hands on them. 
the time he takes for every one of them. He doesn't just do a all of you are healed kind of thing. He, he ministers personally to each and every one. It's something about the nature and character of our Savior, the compassion, the kindness that he has. And then like verse 41 again, and so like a sigh, oh, by the way, there were other, demons were also cast out. Friends, Jesus healed. We're gonna see that this takes place all throughout the gospel. He did heal and he does heal. But I want to say just a brief word about the purpose of these healing accounts. I, I don't think these passages are here to encourage us towards establishing a deliverance or healing ministry. For God never promises this kind of healing. Jesus did heal and he does heal. But I want you to think about the healing accounts we have in the New Testament. This is a unique and unprecedented time. Never was there before and never has there been after such a concentrated mass healing take place in a period of time. Which when you begin to understand the structure of Luke's gospel and the purpose for which he is writing this, you begin to see that the primary purpose of why Jesus healed so many people was not ultimately physical. The purpose primarily was to demonstrate that he in fact was the Messiah and these miracles served as a validation to the truthfulness of his message and ministry. These healings didn't ultimately point to a miracle worker, they pointed to the Messiah. They validated his authority. Sure, God does heal people today. I don't believe miracles have ceased, nor do I, little controversial, nor do I believe all the miraculous spiritual gifts have ceased. What I do know is that the healings in Jesus' day pointed to a greater reality beyond the simple recovery of someone who was sick. Otherwise, why would he not have gone and just did healing and made everyone well? So you see that this physical healing is a demonstration of his ultimate authority, pointing us to the truthfulness, to the, to the truth and reality of who Jesus is. So you see this, Jesus' authority is being established and confirmed time after time again. You see it in his teaching, you see it over evil, you see it over the physical realm. We're gonna to continue to see it throughout the gospels. The second point. Not only does he reveal the authority of his ministry, and second and shorter, is that he reveals the priority of his ministry. See that in the final two, three verses, verses 42 through 44. It says, and when it was day, he departed, went to a desolate place. Mark's gospel tells us he prayed. He went there and prayed. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So this is probably the next morning. Jesus departs and goes to this desolate place to pray. We shouldn't pass by that too quickly. Jesus did not seek to do ministry independent of his father. He placed a high priority on the importance of prayer and dependence upon his father to do the ministry that he had called, been called to do. So Jesus not only taught prayer to his disciples, he modeled prayer modeled how to pray and the necessity of prayer. 
Jesus, the Son of God, the Holy One of God, the Messiah, God in the flesh, prayed. Then, friends, our prayerlessness is such an indictment. Prayer is how we talk to God, but it's ultimately an expression of our dependence and reliance upon him. It becomes clear in the community that Jesus is indeed a miracle worker. He's healed people. He's cast out demons. And so what happens when you get a miracle worker in, in town? You, you bring all the sick and all those who are oppressed to him. That's exactly what we see. Remember, he cast out demons and he's healed the sick and they likely believe because they have this miracle worker in their midst, they want to see more. I don't wanna call it a show, but for the majority of the people in Capernaum that day, they thought we've got quite a show here. We, we've got something big that has hit town and we want everybody to know about it. And so they respond to Jesus's miracles, but they're responding really in a self-fulfilling capacity. They, they do not get the point of who Jesus is at this point. And Jesus does a little bit of correction here. Mark's account fills in a little bit more details and shares a little bit more of the disciples' involvement. Mark tells us that Simon and the other disciples come to Jesus. He's off in the desolate place praying. And they're, they're like, hey, everyone's looking for you. Like, hey, we got more people today. They're excited. And Jesus is like, I'm not doing it. Notice what he says in verse 41, or excuse me, verse 43. He said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. He's got work to do, but that work primarily involves preaching the kingdom of God. Jesus doesn't cave to the demands of the crowd. He presses on by saying, I must preach the good news. Friends, we'll see throughout the gospel of Luke, the kingdom of God will become a dominant theme and Jesus clarifies right here his mission and his purpose. He came to announce God's kingdom and the good news that enables one to become a citizen of this kingdom. Now, while he would do many other things, he would serve, he would heal, he would show compassion, he would raise the dead, he would cast out demons. He did all of these benevolent kinds of things, but he ultimately came with an announcement. The kingdom of God is here. And the king has arrived. That was his purpose, ultimately. Friends, it's a good reminder to us that we, too, can easily get distracted from the primary purposes and ministry and mission of God. The crowds saw Jesus in a self, selfish kind of way. He's here to kind of meet our needs. They saw him as a miracle worker. And even the disciples, all for a, for a good while, they're just not getting it. Often missing, missing the purpose for which Jesus came. And Jesus clarifies right here that his purpose was primarily focused on preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. Because there's a lot of good work that we can and must be part of as Christians and as the church. Indeed, living as kingdom citizens will shape how we view our fellow man, how we live life, 
decisions we make, our perspective, our stewardship, everything about us. But it also reminds us that we belong to a king and we are citizens of a kingdom built on a firm foundation that will never be shaken. Therefore, his kingdom agenda, if it's his priority, should it not be our priority? Should the kingdom of God not be the focus of our ministry, the preaching of good news? Should not that be the primary focus of our ministry? Yes, as we do many other things to serve our fellow man, to to reach out into our communities, to meet physical needs, to do good things, to do good work. I think the gospel just does that in us. I would be hard pressed, it would be hard pressed to, to, to convince people you were truly a Christian if you weren't about serving and loving people. But yet the priority of our calling is the agenda of the kingdom. The good news about this gracious king and his ever growing kingdom ought to be the driving agenda of all our lives. And then it tells us that he goes preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This news was meant to be spread far and wide. And that's exactly what Jesus did. As Jesus continues on in the early days of his ministry, he makes two things clear. One, he has authority. It's not up for vote. We're not gonna confer whether or not Jesus gets authority or he doesn't, he has it. All authority, heaven and on earth, has been given to me, he says. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. He has the authority. The question is, friends, whether or not we recognize that authority and we submit to that authority, engaging in the priority of the kingdom that he has called us to engage. Friend, are you looking to Jesus as the one with authority or are you looking to another? the one who is to be worshiped, the one who is to be followed, the one who is can be trusted, or are you looking to do that with something else? In church, the priority of Jesus ought to inform our own. Too often we are seeking to build our own little kingdoms with our lackluster agendas, putting time and energy in things that will one day perish, but not the kingdom. It will never perish and not our king. He never leaves office. Folks, we have a great savior who is a king of an eternal kingdom. Why not invest in that work? Why not steward your time, resources, and priority with that kingdom and that king in mind? Trust me, when you get to the end of your life and you stand before Jesus, you will not regret for a moment yielding to his authority, and you will not regret for a moment making his agenda your priority. Let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful for this snapshot into the life and ministry of Jesus to show us the truth about who he is. The fact that he is the one with authority, the one to whom we must agree Submit to, follow, treasure. Lord, he has demonstrated himself and he will continue to do so all throughout this gospel. Lord, would you give us eyes to see him for who he truly is? 
Lord, even last week as we talked about the truth being revealed to us in plain sight and yet often rejected, Lord, would you help us not be blind? But God, that you would give us eyes to see the truth. And that you give us hearts that would yield fully and ultimately to Jesus. Father, his authority is not up for grabs. It is. Lord, would you help us to see it and to yield our lives to it. And Lord, for the priority of the kingdom, preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, Lord, would you help that be our priority? Redeeming Grace Baptist Church, would you help us as your people in this place at this time to be a people about your business, about your agenda, about your purposes and kingdom, not our own? Forgive us, Lord, when we have failed to recognize both or either and move in our lives and hearts in a way that would yield fruitfulness and faithfulness for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.